We're, uh, we're starting a, a new series, um, and here's, as I have lived with this whole idea of thanksgiving, the gratitude that I've had in just thinking about how God has blessed my life is unreal. Do you ever stop and think about that, how God has blessed your life? Here's what I want to do. My dad used to do this all the time. He called them popcorn testimonies. I want you to think about what you're, what you're grateful for, what you're thankful for, and you don't have to raise your hand, just say it. Just, just shout it out. What is it for you that you're thankful for? What is it that God has spoke to you? As you think about it right now, what's the first thing that comes to your head? Good health, family, peace. Salvation, right? Anybody else? What, what comes to your mind? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Anybody else? What are you thankful for? What was it? I'm alive. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, just being able to get upright. No masks. Anybody, any other amens on that one? No masks? Man, oh man. I don't even want to invoke that name, right? Even get that going, but. I, God has blessed me. God has blessed me just in the parents that I have. That God placed me in the home of Bev and Cecil Jones, and I was raised by those two people. Amazing how God blesses us. All right, well, the, all of that was free. Good morning to you. You ready to go? All right. As I usually do, I have a question I want to give you a chance to chew on a little bit, okay? Here it is. To you, in your way of viewing the world, what would it look like to experiment, to practice, to learn to live life with God every day? It's a heavy question, isn't it? What would it look like to live fully aware, fully surrendered to, fully empowered by the presence of God? What would that look like in your life? You ever tried to do that before, to live life with God all the time? If you have, how did that go for you? <laughs> it was hard, wasn't it? Personally, I've found it can be pretty difficult to live life intentionally with God all the time and then to make changes in my life it can be really hard to do. You see, it's not that we don't want to change. It's not the desire. It's just that there's so much apathy when it comes to really changing something in your life. But do you know why that is? Because our lives are already headed in a certain direction, right? The rhythms of our lives the habits of our bodies, the pressures from the surrounding world, the things that our jobs require of us, it drives us back to the same old way of living. It's almost like it really doesn't matter what my head is telling me because the currents in our lives just kind of keep drawing us back again and again and again into the same old way of living. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Sometimes the only way to change that is to step out of it. I love how Paul describes this very same situation in his own life. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now remember, this is the Apostle Paul writing this. 
Writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, Apostle Paul. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Aren't you glad that a verse like that exists in the Bible? I think we can all really relate to that. I feel like it describes so much of the real tension of faith, which is not how much do I know about God, but why is it that I can't live out the things that I know I'm supposed to do? We're going to talk a little bit about why that is this morning. And we're going to talk about why do we keep on doing the things we know we shouldn't and a lot of times don't want to do, but we keep on doing it. See, the truth is it doesn't have much to do with how much you know about God, nor does it have much to do with how long you've been a Christian or how often you've gone to church. I think it has to do with this. Do you all get one of these? It's a marshmallow. It's squished, but it's still a marshmallow. Tastes good. There should have been one given to you if hopefully you got it when you came. If not, I think they're on, on the seats in, in, in front of you, beside you. I'm going to show you a recreation of a famous experiment that Stanford University conducted back in the early 70s, including, which included kids and marshmallows. You may have seen this before. It's pretty famous. It's called the marshmallow test. It's about three minutes. Go ahead and play that. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. It smells really
So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> Don't you just love that? The little blonde-haired boy, man, he stole the show. There's so much of our human nature captured in that marshmallow test. Some of you parents and grandparents, you may have uh, enjoyed watching that maybe just a little too much. But the marshmallow test is really about what psychologists would call delayed gratification. We're not great at that, are we? All that simply means that we arrange our lives in such a way that we're open to pain or discomfort in the short term so that we might experience more joy later on, right? Delayed gratification also touches on some deeper spiritual issues, though, such as how do we handle our desires and our appetites, especially especially when it comes to how we're doing or how we're feeling or how we're struggling when it comes to the things that we absolutely want the most, that you just ache to have. So for the rest of the message, we're actually going to do the marshmallow test together. If you're watching at home, maybe you want to have somebody run to the kitchen, get a marshmallow or something similar for each of you. So I want you to hold on to this, okay? I want you to hold on to that marshmallow. Do not eat it. Anybody already eat theirs? God have mercy on your soul. We already failed. We're simply going to hold on to it. Look, I know if you have young kids with you, it, this probably caused maybe like a nuclear accident in your row this morning, but I apologize for that. But we're going to hold on to these marshmallows, and we're going to look at them as not just some little wonderful goodness of sugar. We're going to think about them in terms of that which you want the most. That's what this marshmallow is going to represent for you. If someone put you in a room, and they told you not to touch something, what would be the one thing that you would desire the most? <laughs> it's different for each of us, isn't it? What is it that your life revolves around? What is it that if someone said, in an hour, you can have this, you'd just be tortured thinking, I don't know if I can wait. It's right there in front of me. I want this so bad. There's a lot of things I can think of. You see, part of this great experiment is simply being honest and being willing to dig deep into our appetites and our desires, being willing to dig deep into that thing that we look to for satisfaction and for comfort and for pleasure. What this conversation is really about is actually confronting the deep desires of our hearts. So just for a moment, I want you to think about what you run to for comfort. Some of you may want to be careful of your toes because this may hurt coming through here. What is it you run to so you can cope with your pain and with your disappointment or with depression? Now, there are all kinds of ways that we do this. And we're not always conscious of the how and why that we do this, but one of the most popular places we go to for comfort is food, right? Uh-oh, here we go. We find ourselves eating or overeating just to experience that sense of feeling satisfied, especially, especially when we're struggling with something. 
And it's not just food that we turn to. It could be something like media or media consumption, where we spend hours upon hours online to come home and just veg in front of the TV or in front of video games or on our iPhones, right? Playing games, texting, scrolling on apps like Pinterest or Twitter or Snapchat, TikTok, just hours staring at your screen. How many of you have an iPhone and it gives you that report at the end of the week of how many hours you average per day? That's a little disturbing, isn't it? Or it might be about our body image. Some of us are absolutely obsessed with how we look or how much we exercise or our physique, just consumed with the thought of how do people see me? Or it might be about your reputation. You wonder all the time, do people think I'm successful? What do people think about me? And if they do, you feel really good, right? If they don't, you're in the tank. You feel like it satisfies your heart that someone else might think that you're doing a good job. Our self-worth is wrapped up in what somebody else thinks of us. Or it might even be busyness. Some of us just busy, 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 busy. Always working, working, working as a way to cope with what maybe is a deeper hunger that's actually in your heart or in your soul. It might even be about a substance, something like alcohol or tobacco or for Nazarenes, caffeine. It may even be about an addiction to those things, but just a need to have it around, maybe just to take the edge off, maybe lighten you up so you can have a good time or your headache will go away or whatever. It might even be about materialism for you. Maybe just getting more and more stuff. It, it gives you comfort. It makes you feel good to buy that thing. Do you remember those MasterCard commercials about the priceless moments? You guys remember this? Two tickets to the baseball game, 80 bucks. Two ballpark hot dogs and two drinks, 80 bucks. Pretty sure that's what they actually cost. And then a day at the baseball game, priceless, right? We're all in search of those priceless experiences, and we often think that the way to get there is having more and more and more stuff. Which leads me to think this. Your appetite for comfort, for gratification, for satisfaction, it has a far greater influence on you than you think. Let me say that again. Your appetite for comfort, for gratification, for satisfaction, has a far more powerful influence on your life than you might actually think. See, when it comes to what you want the most, whatever this is for you, we're not all that different from those kids that were in that room with that marshmallow struggling and frustrated and wrestling with what to do, right? That little kid that gets it up to his mouth, puts it down, holds his head, right? And what makes this even more challenging for us is the cultural context in which we live. We live in a world where all the messages we hear basically say this. The point of life is to satisfy your desires and to fulfill your appetites. And man, we are moving into the Christmas season and you're going to get that more than ever. We live in a culture that tells us, look, if it tastes good, eat it. Looks good, buy it. If it feels good, do it. Right? Right? The mere fact that you want it, it means that it's good for you. That's what the world tells us. It's the message that permeates and saturates our culture and our world. So my question to you is this, how do you know? How do you 100% know? Not just that something will be good in the moment, instant gratification, but how do you know it will be good for you in the long run? 
How do you know that your go-to for comfort, for gratification, will truly satisfy your desires? You know, it's interesting to me that we seem to have no problem identifying something that looks good or tastes good or feels good. But man, do we massively struggle to know if something is actually good for us, especially in the long run. We struggle. I mean, 30 plus years of ministry and working with both teens and adults, plus all the years of being a professional people watcher. I am a sociology major after all. I've noticed something that happens time and time and time again with shocking regularity. Do you know what it is? It's simply this. People routinely mispredict how much pleasure or displeasure future events will bring. Have you ever mispredicted how much pleasure or displeasure a decision will bring in your life? I have. I've done it a lot. I do it all the time. And we do it in so many little ways, too. To begin with, we do this in our thought life. We might have a critical thought about someone, see if this sounds familiar. And when that happens, we get this little jolt of satisfaction, which leads us to believe that more of those critical thoughts about other people will be good for us. And not only do we have those critical thoughts, we start sharing them. And what is that called? Yeah, gossip. But you know, they're not going to be able to give us that satisfaction that we want. They rob us of intimacy and authentic community with our brothers and sisters, especially when it graduates into gossip. We also mispredict pleasure and displeasure in our financial life. We get a little jolt of satisfaction from seeing the amount of money in our checking or savings account go up just a little bit, right? Leading us to believe that more of it will actually be good for us. So we start keeping more and more of our money for ourselves, but over time, what we actually experience isn't good. It's actually more fear, more worry, more stress about what it is that we don't have. You ever notice that? We also mispredict pleasure and displeasure in our material lives. We get this little jolt of satisfaction from buying something that we don't really need. That's me. (laughs) My wife goes, amen to that. (laughs) The latest and greatest gadget. Something that helps us look more fashionable. Something that looks and dries faster. I think it'll be good for us. But all that happens over time is we end up feeling more and more attached to what other people think of us. It's truly amazing how bad we can be at predicting pain and pleasure. I think more money, more success, more stuff, more status would make us happier. It's almost like we're all in the pleasure mispredicting business and we all seem to be pros at it. But it's, it's not because all of our desires are fundamentally evil. It's not because the things that will bring us satisfaction are fundamentally evil. It's because we've convinced ourselves that the things that we're pursuing, the desires of our hearts, the thing that we want the most will be a better provider for us than God. And this pattern goes all the way back to the very first human beings, right? We read about it in the story of creation. Adam and Eve lived in a world that God made to be enjoyed. It was, it was a wonderland. Genesis 2, we're told the Lord God made all kinds of trees, made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. You see, this verse tells us something super important about God and his intentions for creation. God is not a cosmic killjoy who created the earth and said, you better not enjoy it. It's not it at all. See, God created the earth so it could be enjoyed. God created us with a physical body with the senses that help you experience and enjoy the world around you. God is an amazing creator. 
I believe that God loves it when we look at places like Lake Erie and Mammoth Cave or a beautiful lighthouse off the coast of Maine. We feel a sense of awe and wonder inside. You ever had that? God loves it when the smell of flowers changes your mood. He loves it that the taste of chocolate can make you smile. Anybody in that boat? He loves it that the sounds of amazing grace can still make this grown man's heart cry. You know, about 17 years ago, one of my former teens was stationed in Honolulu, Hawaii. What a place to be stationed, huh? We got the chance to visit him. Justin was in the army at the time, and we went to lunch with him, and he was telling us all about the nice weather there, about swimming at Christmas time, about working and drilling outside in the sun. And it made me think about how much God loves that Justin gets to enjoy that. But if I'm being completely honest here, it also made me think about how much it bugged me. Just a little bit that he got to enjoy that all the time. But here's the thing. As good as God created the world to be, none of those created things were made to replace our lives with the creator. None of those created things were made to be better providers for you than God. But that's what happened. That's what these first human beings began to believe Many of you know this story. In Genesis 3, the serpent came and said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice that he doesn't tempt them with things like money or reputation or success. He simply plants in their mind this one little thought. This one little seemingly innocent thought that God is stingy. Did God really say you can't have all this stuff? Really? You see, all Satan had to do was to plant that one little thought in their mind that God is stingy that God is withholding something really, really good from them, and that you could enjoy life way more without God. See, the devil only has one lie. That God isn't good, and you better start taking care of yourself, and that's it. That's it. Everything else is just kind of a spinoff of that one thing, that God isn't good, that he's stingy, that he's holding out on you, and that you better start taking care of yourself. Anybody heard that in the back of your mind? See, the problem is when we believe that lie, our eyes begin to see the world differently. We start to believe that something else is a much better provider than God is, which is exactly what happened in the garden. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, which it was, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, which it was. But without God involved... Without a conversation with God, without leaning into God, without talking to God, without trusting God, they ate it. And they traded life with God for the temporary satisfaction of that marshmallow that you're holding in your hand or sitting beside you. Adam and Eve traded their lives with God for the temporary sweetness of something like that little marshmallow. Let that sink in. You know, as I was thinking about all this, it occurred to me, that moment in the garden at that tree, maybe you've had this thought. That moment lies at the heart of all sin, of all human brokenness, of all greed, of all envy. All of the things that are wrong with us go back to that moment. When Paul's explaining the whole doctrine of sin to the Romans in Romans 1.25, he refers back to this very moment. Paul says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's what's wrong with us. That's what's wrong with me. That's what's wrong with you. That's why this whole idea of life with God is so difficult to live day in and day out because we buy the lie, all of us. We buy the lie and we do it all the time. When we hoard our money, 
we buy the lie. When we misuse our sexuality, we buy the lie. When we seek our own good, our own comfort, our own safety before someone else, we buy the lie. We do this kind of stuff all the time, probably way more than we care to admit. It's not necessarily something that we always consciously do. It's, it's like this sort of automatic drive in our bodies. We're not even thinking about it consciously all the time. Which is why so many Christians can look so faithful one day and be almost the opposite the next. It's why so many Christians can say that they believe one thing and then go live another way. It's because we switched into autopilot. Here's a question for you. Have you ever known a Christian who said one thing and they did something else? Have you ever been the Christian who said one thing and did something else? Well, guess what? You're not alone. Think about Peter for a moment. You guys remember Peter, right? How he said he'd never deny Jesus. Peter explicitly said, I will go to the grave before I would do something like that. Then within 24 hours of making that statement, he denies knowing Jesus three times. Have you ever stopped to think, how is that possible? How is it possible for a person who spent three years walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, how is it per- possible for that person to be so quick in doing the exact opposite of what he said he was gonna do? Well, I think it's because he knew a lot about Jesus. He had learned a lot about Jesus, but his body, his flesh, his appetites had not been trained to resist the lie. Peter's body, his flesh, his appetites had not been trained to resist the desire to be safe, the desire to be comfortable, and the desire to avoid pain at all costs. See, Peter wanted to be safe and comfortable and pain-free more than he wanted God. And before you get up on your high horse, we're no better. Dr. Dallas Willard wrote in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, I thought this was really good. One of the greatest deceptions in the practice of the Christian religion is the idea that all that really matters is our inner feelings, ideas, beliefs, and intentions, leaving us a head full of vital truths about God and a body unable to fend off sin. Has that ever been you? I know it's been me. We have a head full of knowledge, but our appetite for comfort, for gratification, for satisfaction is so great that our bodies continue to fall into greed or fear or arrogance. See, it's also the reason why so many of us struggle with Christianity. Why we struggle to live a with God life, we've exchanged the truth about God for the lie that something else will provide for us better. I don't believe it's a conscious thing. I think it's something that happens over time. And that pattern will never change until until we begin to recognize those places that we run to for the comfort instead of God. We have to recognize those places that we lean into so we can cope with the pain or the disappointment in our lives. We have to recognize those things that our body insists that we can't live without. Which brings us to the life of Jesus, right? Because you see, Jesus also faced this type of temptation. Jesus faced this this temptation just like you did. He was fully God, but he was also fully human, which meant he had a physical body just like you. Jesus had real appetites. He had real desires just like you, which means he faced the same basic question that every person has faced since Adam and Eve. Will I trust God to provide for my needs, or do I simply follow my appetites and my desires wherever they take me? 
That's the question for all of us, isn't it? Will I trust God to provide for my needs? Or do I simply follow my appetites and my desires wherever they take me? That's the question. And in order to navigate this question in his life, which is a very real question for Jesus, God led Jesus on a very curious experiment. He led Jesus on something that might be comparable to the marshmallow test, only big. This is from Matthew 4.1. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Possibly one of the greatest understatements in Scripture ever. He was hungry. A tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, it can be super easy to read through this story and to simply gloss over how significant, how personal, how vulnerable this story in particular is for Jesus. Maybe you've thought about this. How many of you like to journal? Anybody in here like to journal? Does anyone keep a journal of your devotional, personal thoughts, that type of thing? I would love, my, lo- my heart d- desire is I love this type of discipline. But it seems like every time I start one, I lose it or I forget to write into it for three or four days and I try and start over. You know, I guess I always kind of picture Jesus having some sort of journal that he wrote thoughts. And I, nobody knows that. The truth is no one knows if Jesus kept a journal or not. But if he did, if he did, this story would have been in it. Because this story could only have been told by Jesus himself. Every other story we have in the Gospels, whether it's Jesus' teaching or healing or arguing with the Pharisees, there was always witnesses, Right? There was always other people around to notice, but not this one. The story of Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness, this one is personal. This one is private. This one's vulnerable. This one is close to the heart. This is one of those stories that Jesus probably would have rather have kept to himself. Why? Because this is not a story of Jesus walking on the water or raising the dead. This is the story of Jesus struggling. I'm glad the story is in there. After 40 days without food, his body's weak, it's lost. He's lost a a bunch of weight. He's in pain. Turn back one chapter to Matthew 3. You'll find that right before all this desert experience, does anybody remember what happened? Jesus is in the Jordan River being baptized by John the Baptist, right? And while Jesus is being baptized, a voice from heaven, God himself says down to Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Such an amazing and surreal experience to have, right? Amazing. And then just a few days after that voice of affirmation and love from God, Jesus is in the desert starving to death. Hmm. Jesus had to have been thinking, what in the world? Father, is this what being loved looks like? Is this what being in your favor looks like? Is this what your provision and grace looks like? He was human. That part of him. Tell me something, honestly. Have you ever been in the wilderness? Have you ever been in a difficult place? Have you ever been struggling and think to yourself, is this what God's love looks like? Jesus knows that place. It's this question, this doubt. This is, this is where the tempter goes to try and tempt Jesus. He says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, he immediately focuses Jesus' attention of one, on what he doesn't have. It's the first and most effective tactic of the devil, to immediately focus Jesus' attention on what he doesn't have. Look at all the dirt, all the rocks, all the stones all around you, Jesus, but no bread in sight. See, when we're living with an unsatisfied appetite, the devil's first tactic is to narrow our vision. 
So we can't see anything else but that. Have you ever experienced that? You know how this goes, right? Satan says, wow, you really have that little in your checking account? Oof. You're really struggling that much? I mean, look around you. How come God didn't give you some of that? How about this one? No relationship? Well, you must be lonely. I mean, how do you survive? Look at all those great relationships all around you. Think of all the fun they're having, but not you. You see, the first sign that temptation, that Satan is working on your appetites, is that one or two appetites in your life become everything. It's all about what you're missing, what you don't have. And as our vision narrows down to that one unsatisfied appetite, Satan uses that to distort the quality of our relationship with God. The tempter says to Jesus, look, if you're truly the son of God, why are you out here in the desert starving to death? If you're God's son, if he really loves you, why are you out here struggling and starving and hurting? If you want the hunter to go away, Jesus, all you gotta do is tell the stones to become bread. Do it. In other words, Jesus, you have a life to live. You have appetites that need to be satisfied. I can provide for your needs right here and right now. You'll feel better, Jesus. There's a decision you can make right now that'll make you feel on top of the world. Just give it to me. Does that sound familiar? Satan whispers to you, I know you're financially struggling and you're still trying to tithe? You know there's a decision you can make to change that. Or you're trying to wait until marriage and it's, it's nothing but a battle? You know, there's a better way to do that. Just give in. You're feeling discouraged, depressed? You know, there's always a drink or a pill or an entertainment that can provide for you something that'll make you feel better. You know, when we start to believe that garbage, when we fall into that, we exchange the truth about God for the lie that something else will be a better provider for us than God. See, the lie isn't that bread is evil. The lie is that you can make your hunger go away without God. The lie is that you'll be happier if you could just have more of this, if you could taste more of that. Is this you? This sounds like a good description of your life and your heart and your habits, and you want to change that. I've got some great news for you. Jesus, he took a different road. He took a different route. Jesus said, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, notice that Jesus didn't condemn our appetites or dismiss our desires. And this is super important to understand because a lot of times in Christian circles, we can get this twisted a little bit. See, Jesus knows that God gave you a physical body with desires for food and sleep, companionship, and so on. These were meant to be ways to experience the joy and the provision of God, which is why Jesus doesn't say that bread is evil or that hunger is evil or that he doesn't need to eat it. He says that people do not live on bread alone. Alone's the key word there. Bread, man, it is, it is good. It is very, very good. Texas Roadhouse with the honey butter is really, real. all right, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting off. I'm... <laughs> only God provides. Money is good, but only God provides. Comfort is good, but only God provides. People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, amen? See, what Jesus is telling us is that even out there in the desert, even when he was hungry, God showed up and provided for him in a way that was better, in a way that was more satisfying. And here's what I want you to hear. God showed up, and he'll show up for you too. 
So how do we learn to believe that? How do we learn to trust that in our lives? How do we learn to be more thankful for that? Well, the answer is found in a largely overlooked detail in the story. The practice Jesus brought, the discipline Jesus practiced in this story is that Jesus fasted. Hmm. He fasted. Jesus went without something so he could live with God. He went without something so he could experience God in a more profound way. Jesus didn't accidentally go without food. He intentionally chose to abstain from food for 40 days and for 40 nights. Not to prove how spiritual he was, but to reject the lie that any of this other stuff that Satan was offering him was a better provider than God was. He fasted. You know, my dad, Cecil Jones, he's literally the foremost expert that I know of on this concept of fasting. At some point, I'll bring him in to teach specifically on this. And if you know my dad, you know that this is a huge thing for him. He loves this, this, this discipline of fasting. He's done a 40-day fast at least a dozen times. Unbelievable. Now, I'm not going to try and diminish it. Fasting is hard. The times I fasted, I was pretty miserable to be around. I was fussy and impatient and easily irritated. Probably like me on most days, actually, but it was even worse on the days of fasting. For a while, I thought I was angry because I was hungry. That's a huge misconception. A lot of times, we think we're angry because we're hungry, and we call that hangry, right? But that's not actually true. Here's what I figured out. Hunger doesn't create anger. It simply reveals it. See, I was already angry. I was already unsatisfied. It's just that I've been consuming so much of it every day without taking the time to cope with it, to deal with it. I just didn't realize that I was that angry. What I found out about my soul was that I was angry at God, that I had an unmet, unsatisfied desire in my heart, and I didn't believe that God would or could meet it. That is a terrible place to be, especially when you're a pastor. Every time I fasted, and I haven't done it very often, I'm no expert at this at all, but the next morning when I would get up to pray, those were some of the sweetest moments with God that I've ever had in my entire life, which makes me wonder why I don't do it more. I need to. So as part of this great experiment, guess what? We're going to fast. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? We're going to experiment with fasting. We're going to live without something in order to live with God. Now, there are all kinds of ways to fast, but one of the fasts I'm proposing is one of the most common versions of fasting, and it's called the Daniel Fast. All it is is eating and drinking only fruits and vegetables for a certain amount of time. It could be a day or two, could be weeks. It doesn't really matter. Whatever you feel like God's asking you to do. Fasting is simply living without something so we can experience the provision of God. It could be about food. It could be about media. Maybe that's more crushing for you. It could be about alcohol or tobacco or caffeine. It could be about shopping. It could be about the consumption that you have in your life. But we're going to experiment with this together this week. Here's the question. Are you willing to try it? Guess what? You're probably going to feel a lot like those kids in that room staring at that marshmallow. You're going to feel frustrated. You're going to feel hungry. You're going to think, why in the world did I listen to that stupid pastor at church? But in the midst of your hunger, in the midst of your frustration, as the tempter comes and says, why are you doing this? Are you nuts? You know you can live better than this. As you wait, as you listen, there is a God who will show up, who will provide better than anything else in your life. 
It may take some time. It may take some practice. But the point isn't to be perfect at it. The point is that there's a God whose voice you can trust, who says, I'm coming back, and when I do, you will be blessed. Folks, God is enough. For all that you need in your life, God is enough.